0: All right, well, how about we pray and we'll get going. God, we thank you for an opportunity to look at your word. And we think about what scripture says in Psalm 19 and Psalm 119 about how your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And it's good for making us wise and leading us to you and making us humble before you. And so I pray that you would accomplish those things as we look at your word this morning. Teach us from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Hi, everybody. Good morning. morning. Congratulations. We were just talking about you. Newlyweds. That's rad. I have uh, a little card for you, but I left it at home in the midst of gathering all my other papers. So at some point I will get it to you. Forgive me. But congrats. I highly recommend getting married. (laughs) And that's after 15 years, or 14, almost 15 years of doing it. So, Dwight, come on, how long have you been married? 53. Would you still recommend it? Sure. <laughs> all right.
1: <laughs> Maybe not for the same lady.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right, you wouldn't recommend that I marry. Right, okay, got it. Um. All right, who would be willing to... So we're gonna look at 1 Corinthians 10. We actually need to go back a little bit to at least chapter nine, verse 24. So is there somebody who would be willing to read 9.24 through 10.5?
1: I will. Thank you. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who completes, competes in games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. All right, thank you, sir. So uh, we have
0: a tendency to read our Bibles like a chapter at a time, or even like a verse at a time, and a lot of times that causes us to not catch the connection between maybe one chapter or one verse and the one that comes next and a lot of times uh, the headings can kind of distract us from what is being taught here so the ESV has a heading over chapter 10 warning against idolatry. I think that's helpful but I think it causes you to kind of stop thinking about what comes in the verses leading up to chapter 10 verse 1 so who thinks that they can identify a connection between what ends chapter 9 and what begins chapter 10. Like, why would Paul go from talking about finishing a race to talking about Israel?
2: Israel didn't finish the race. They didn't make it.
0: That's exactly right. He's saying, look, run to finish the race. Run to uh, to win the prize. And if you want an example of what that doesn't look like, don't be like Israel. They failed to obtain the prize. Tragically. Okay? Two did. That's it. Only two? That ended up making the promised land anyways. Right. Okay. Thank you. That's helpful. Yeah, because he says, and not many... Um, verse 5, sorry, with most of them, God was not pleased. Right? So, particularly with Israel entering the promised land, two did. Joshua and Caleb. Right? And I think when you look at the vast majority of Israel in the Old Testament, there's very, very few... Um, You know, you think about what God says to Elijah, isn't it on Mount Horeb where he says there's 7,000 in Israel. That's meant to be an encouragement to Elijah, but in reality, of all the hundreds of thousands, probably millions of Israelites at that point, 7,000 is a tiny minority. Okay, so um, we're going to talk in this chapter, we're going to continue to talk about the idea of like Christian freedom which we've been sort of talking about in the last couple chapters as well. Um, but one of the ideas that Paul is going to get at is we have Christian freedom, and we can talk about what that means in more detail if you want, but we're not meant to exercise that freedom sort of uh, licentiously um, or, or with all kinds of license, meaning we are meant to exercise self-control over that freedom. And otherwise, uh, you see kind of what happens to Israel. It leads to ruin. Um, Does somebody want to try and, like, describe Christian freedom? What does that mean? We're going to talk about it more, so if we don't get a great definition now, that's okay.
1: Freedom to
0: do good. All right, that's awesome. That's really good. I would expound that by saying we're free from the slavery of sin so whereas the world says freedom is you have the power to do whatever you want the Bible teaches that freedom is to do what God wills you to do not what your flesh wills you to do not what sinful desire wills you to do kind of, kind of, because it's, you know, in, in, it's in a freedom as a slave to Christ because you're a slave to Christ you know use, use right. you're a slave to Christ but there's still freedom in that right place. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Uh, slavery to Christ is freedom. So if you go back to chapter 6 verse 12 Paul kind of already touched on this which I think i taught chapter 6 so we spent some time talking about this. <clears throat> all things are lawful for me but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me but I will not be dominated by anything. So I think, again, there's quotes here. All things are lawful for me. I think Paul is saying back to them what they've been saying to him. Look, we're free in Christ. We can do whatever we want. And he's saying, well, doing whatever you want is not always helpful. That's not good for your soul necessarily. Um, And sin tends to have a dominating effect in our lives. Sin is slavery, right? So Paul's saying doing things that take you further away from God does not give you greater freedom. It enslaves you more deeply. Which we see with Israel. Okay, so what we have in chapter ten, though, is really a kind of a detailed history of Israel's folly. They were set free from slavery in Egypt, which is uh, an illustration for what? For us, what does that illustrate? Slavery. Yeah. Say it louder. Slavery to sin. Yeah, the slavery to sin. Right. Egypt or Israel comes out of slavery in Egypt, and that is correspondent to our coming out of slavery to sin right Jesus is the better Moses he leads people out of slavery to sin into freedom but their freedom ends up leading them to ruin and Paul talks about how they had an advantage in every way if you if you read the Exodus story I've, I've been going through it because um, I'm in like numbers right now it's just astounding how often Israel has these really incredible revelations of God's power, and then almost immediately falls back into sin. It kind of makes me think of where Jesus is telling the story of the rich man and Lazarus, and uh, the rich man says, but Father Abraham, looking up into heaven, and he's in hell, right? And he says, but Father Abraham, if I could, if I could go to my brothers, even though I'm now dead, if I could appear to them and warn them, then they would believe. And Abraham's response is, even if someone were to rise from the dead, they wouldn't believe. right? So Israel is a really astounding example of how quickly we can lose confidence in God. But they saw the cloud by day and the fire by night. They passed through the Red Sea miraculously. Um, Moses, who is considered to be the greatest of all the prophets, was their leader and their guide. He literally met with God in the tent of meeting. Uh, They had as their provision manna from heaven and when they got tired of that and they whined and complained then God fed them basically meat till they wanted to puke Uh, He sends in this This flock of birds and and they literally eat themselves sick Um, They drank from the rock which is this spring of life in the middle of the desert So all these incredible miraculous provisions and they lose their faith and if they could do that, then what kind of warning is that for us, right? Do you get to follow a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night? Does your food literally come down from heaven when you wake up in the morning? Does your water come, from you, come to you miraculously? Well, it sort of feels miraculously. So you just turn the <laughs> tap on and there it is. But you get the point. So with all of these beautiful blessings, they failed to have faith and trust in God. Now, we have a greater resource than they do. We don't necessarily see miracles, but what do we have that they didn't have? Bible. The
2: Holy
0: Spirit. Okay, the Bible, but I would say the Holy Spirit even more significantly. The Bible certainly directs us, but it's the Spirit that ultimately gives people faith. Right? You can't even believe unless the Spirit opens your eyes to that. And Paul's already said that back in chapter 2. Um, and interestingly, Israel is disqualified, but who else ends up disqualified? Moses himself.
2: He's part of Israel.
0: Right? He is yeah. part of Israel. But you would think even he, he of all people, would be the one to enter the promised land, to be faithful until the end. But uh, there comes this point where in anger he strikes the rock and he reaps the consequence of that. So, tragically, you know, I think sometimes, um, well, this is a little shtick of mine. uh, yeah. uh Dispensationalism is a pretty common theological view in our country. Is anybody familiar with dispensationalism? Want to try and define it? Throughout time, there's been different periods of time that God has worked. And uh, and, and each of those is a dispensation of God working in... Other people may think of covenant, God, you know, these just time, time periods. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great definition. Thank you. There's really two predominant ways to reconcile the Old Testament and the New Testament. How do they kind of fit together? Um, Because they are totally kind of different. And one of them is that God just works differently in different periods of time, different dispensations. Uh, so you have like the dispensation where the early, what, what we've been looking at in Genesis, right? Like from Adam to Moses. And then you have like, or, I'm sorry, from Adam to Noah. And then you have like Noah through the patriarchs. And then you have uh, Moses in the time of Israel. God works differently in different dispensations. And I think one of the things that kind of ends up happening sometimes with people who don't know, maybe know dispensationalism well enough is they kind of idolize Israel. Like, it was this idyllic period of time in God's plan of redemption. And in reality, if you read the Old Testament, you can't you can't come to that conclusion. Um, and Paul is saying here, the lesson that we learn from Israel is not how to approach God, but how not to interact with God,
2: right? Can we roll for just a minute yeah. talk on what, what we just talked about, disqualified? Yeah, I think last week, Brian and Bob were talking past each other, and I think... I see both things in Scripture, and even here you're alluding to Moses being disqualified, yet I think to a different degree than um, the rest of Israel. And so was Paul, in, in the end chapter 9, was he talking about being disqualified in the sense of um, maintaining salvation? And or like Moses, did Moses still maintain salvation in heaven when we see Moses in heaven? Because I don't think the Israelites that were disqualified in the first part of 10, Maintain heaven, you know what I mean? Like or this or salvation in a sense. Yeah. Because um, we we just said Moses got disqualified. Right. Probably specifically.
0: So I think there's two applications you can make here, but ultimately Paul has in mind losing salvation. I mean if you if you don't maintain your commitment to Christ to the end, then you don't. You you end up disqualified. Um and, and that's a warning okay I mean I, I'm, I hold the position theologically that you can't lose your salvation but we don't know who ultimately is saved until they're in the ground and we can say that's clearly a saint right um, I, I guess I shouldn't say that because I would say of myself I'm saved I have no doubt of that I, I think I will be faithful to the end because of God's grace um, but we
2: can look at passages like um, and why can't I think of it um, well, I guess I'm asking, was Moses disqualified in the salvific sense? Because we thought came out of um, our mouths right now. Right. No, I would say absolutely
0: not. Moses was not disqualified in a salvific sense.
2: From getting into the, into the new, into, into
1: the new uh, land of Milton, I mean, he was not, not able to get in. Right. right. That was where the disqualification yes,
0: happened, right? He. Yes. Yes, he was disqualified from entering the physical
2: promised land, but not the spiritual promised land. So would you disagree with that? No, I agree. I, oh. I think so. There's temporal um, things like you know. I think we're going to read chapter eleven. They, you know, that many of them died.
0: Yeah, and um, and actually another great place to go for this. And why can I not think of it? Um, Paul's going to deal with this again in Second Corinthians. Man, where is it? If you build with hay or straw... Oh, that's 1 Corinthians 4. Is it 4? We already talked about it. Okay, sorry. Yeah, so he's already dealt with this back in chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians.
2: Um, All right, it's uh, 3. Is it 3? Okay. <laughs> Thank you. But um, I guess so the example to us, because it says here twice, they are examples for us. The example for us is not... Yeah, you might get disqualified of temporal things running in such a way. I think the example for us is... Don't well, don't apostatize, right? Absolutely, I think that's
0: exactly right. And and what I'm trying to protect against is um, because I don't believe that you can lose your salvation, right? I believe that the saints will persevere to the end. Um, if you didn't earn your, well, I heard somebody say it in a kind of a funny way recently. If you could lose your salvation, you would have already, right? Because it's not dependent on you, but. We can't then say, so warnings like this don't really matter. That if, if, if that's the route you go, then you're probably maybe already drifting towards apostasy. This is a sincere warning, and if you don't maintain holiness, because holiness is a sign of the indwelling spirit, then you're on track to lose your salvation. My, so,
2: yeah? I'm sorry, my futile nope. to try to say that is, you can't lose your salvation in the sense that no principalities, no powers, nothing can take it away from you. It's secure in Christ. But if you say i don't want this i don't i reject christ you're don't be deceived you've given up your salvation yeah no one took it from you you can't you can't lose it but if you want to abandon it here's the warnings don't don't do it yeah that's the only way you can lose it is to abandon just to
0: give it up yeah Mm -hmm. that's good and i think that actually probably intersects well with like hebrews 6 where it talks with that that you've tasted of enlightenment and um you've seen the powers of the age to come that's good so yeah, because otherwise you could read something like this and be like, well, that's not my problem because i got the Holy Spirit. And Paul would say, you're not paying attention, right? Don't, don't walk away from this. I mean, Israel had every right to it, and they
2: chose not to. Yeah, or callous people will say, they still got salvation. I'll just live my life a little loose here. And, you know, they still got, I don't care about the rewards here. You know, I don't care about that. But that's yeah. not what it saying. So. Yeah,
0: no, that's, that's really good. Um, I mean, look at verse 6. These, now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. I mean, if you desire evil, there's no way you're going to end up in the kingdom of God. Um, again, I heard somebody say this recently, and maybe I already said it. In heaven, there's no place to sneak off for a quick sin. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, if you really like sin, and, and even though in a, in a group of people you might... Uh, pretend a certain way, a certain righteousness. In heaven, there's no place you can't like find a back alley where you can go and be like, ah, oh, have a little sin, right? It doesn't work like that. Um, and if that's what you desire, then heaven is not going to be a place where you will fit in very well. Okay, so the rock was Christ. I think this is really interesting. Um, mm-hmm. I love the way that the New Testament authors take pictures from the Old Testament and they're like, that was this. And um, you know, we, we probably wouldn't make that assumption. We might, we might sort of like be tempted to kind of allegorize, but there's some places in the New Testament where very clearly the Spirit reveals to us, Christ was with the people of Israel as they made their way through the desert. He was present in the rock. And Paul says here something kind of interesting. Well, uh, in verse four, what does, he, what does he mention about the behavior of the rock? It followed them, right? You don't actually get that in the text. If you were to go back to um, Exodus 17, and it's there again in Numbers 20, the text there doesn't actually say that. So where does Paul get this idea from? Rabbinic Yeah, I think so. He. I mean, I guess this could be the Holy Spirit revealing it to him. But um, there's a Talmud Sukkah 311 where it says... Um, and so, so the Talmud is rabbinical reflections. It's like a rabbinical commentary on the Old Testament. And so Talmud, uh, Sukkah 311 says, And so the well which was with the Israelites in the wilderness was a rock the size of a large round vessel surging and gurgling upward as from the mouth of this little flask, rising up with them onto the mountains and going down with them into the valleys." Wherever the Israelites would encamp, it made camp with them. So, uh, I mean, this could be the Holy Spirit revealing this, but I think more than likely Paul is uh, playing off of rabbinical teachings that this rock that Moses struck for water kind of followed, is rolled along with Israel, which is kind of a cool image because then it makes sense why Paul's saying Christ followed them, right? The rock followed them. He was with them in the wilderness. Um Yeah, okay, so another thing that's kind of interesting here is um, you have this mention of um, the rock. And if we were to go back to Exodus 17, 6, it says that Moses struck the rock. You don't You don't actually need to go there if you don't want to. But Exodus 17, it says that Moses struck the rock. Um, the Hebrew word there is actually the word nakah, and it means more than to, like, hit. It actually means to smite. So Moses smote the rock and it brought forth the living water. Uh, That word nakah, to smite, also shows up in Isaiah 53 verse 4. Does anybody know what Isaiah 53 is? It's the suffering servant. It's Isaiah's prophecy about the Messiah and how God would smite him. So this is just kind of some interesting connections that I don't think are, um, that, are that I don't think are, what's the word I'm looking for? Like accidental. They're, they're not, they're intended.
3: Is that the same incident where he got banned from going to the
0: Holy Land because he did it in anger? Or it a- no, Exodus 17 is where he does it appropriately. And that's where the word nekah comes up. That's a good question. Moses in his flesh and his anger strikes the rock who is Christ and we drink from that rock that's, that's yeah well actually I, I, was, I was saying that in, uh, I was going more when Moses does it appropriately the rock is smitten and it provides living water for the people of Israel and that's a foreshadowing of God's intention to smite Christ the rock who will provide living water for his people Okay, so um, there's obviously some typology here as well. Um, We've got the typology in verse 1 of passing through the sea. What would that correspond to in the new covenant? Baptism, right? Um, We've got all ate the same spiritual food in verse 3 and all drank the same spiritual drink. What would that correspond to? Communion, Communion, right? Uh, So, in a sense, like Paul is kind of saying that they they had their Old Testament form of kind of communion with God. And uh, they still dabbled in unbelief. Not even dabbled. They were guilty of unbelief. And we have a corresponding um, communion with God. But it should lead us to an even greater belief than what they had. What about this phrase in here, um, our fathers, in verse 1? Who's Paul writing to? Is Paul writing to Jews or Gentiles? I think he's predominantly writing to Gentiles in Corinth. I think the majority of his audience is going to be Gentile. I mean, does, if you have evidence to the contrary, feel free to like correct me on that. Um, but I think he's predominantly writing in Gentiles. But he includes in the Gentiles this concept of our fathers. Rather than say something like, and the fathers of the Israelites, or the patriarchs. Why would he use that kind of inclusive language? Let me ask it this way. Who did Jesus say the true children of Abraham are? Do the will. Yeah, those who by faith do the will of God the Father, right? So... We are in the lineage of Abraham. I mean, I'm going to talk about this today in my sermon. Our spiritual fathers are the Israelites. Um, So we would be included in this as well. And Paul doesn't feel any problem telling Gentiles that their fathers are Israelites, even though bloodline would say that that's not possible. Should we can we spend a little bit of time talking about how the Bible uses the word brothers? I mean, this isn't um this isn't really like the point of First Corinthians ten, but I think it's worth touching on because of the culture that we live in. So Paul says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers. Does anybody is anybody reading from a translation that writes that differently? They all say brothers? Brethren. Brethren? That's true. So the ESV does footnote that there. Does anybody see a little number, two, or a number, and then at the bottom, what does it say? Brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters. Okay. So brethren is probably actually kind of a better word because it's a little bit more inclusive. Um, and I want to touch on this a little bit because I think culturally it's kind of significant. Um, throughout most of human history, the gender inclusive form, if you're language uses gender distinctions is what? What's the gender inclusive form? Masculine, right? Um, But we are living in a culture that is trying desperately hard to erase that. Mm -hmm. Why is that?
3: Sin.
0: Yeah, I think it is sin, right? Uh, Does anybody have a problem with the fact that God chooses to reveal himself as male? Because there's a movement of people that supposedly cra- claim Christianity to sort of scrub that and give God either gender-neutral terminology or maybe he, she, inclusive, male, female.
4: When, when you ask the question, anybody, do you mean anybody in this
0: room? <laughs> right.
4: <laughs> I would suspect nobody in this room, but there's lots of
0: anybody. So I'm all for uh, trying to find ways to be more inclusive, if possible. But the fact of the matter is we disrespect God if we use language different than what he used. But great even that statement is a false statement.
4: So you're what do not, you mean? That because you, you, you didn't clarify it. You said you're all in favor of being more inclusive. That's totally untrue. Okay, let me let me say it a different if way. I ask it, if, if I say it in a, in a certain category, you're not willing to be inclusive in women being part of the elder team you're not willing to be inclusive in um, in, in uh, men going into women's bathrooms you're not willing to be so you can't say yeah that's fair
0: inclusive you have to define what you're being inclusive yeah <laughs> let me try let me try and say it again I am um, I'm all for making sure that we clearly communicate that in the eyes of God male and female are equal in value there you go that's that's But we cannot erase the distinctions that God has chosen to write into both creation and his word. That's not our... We don't have the authority to do that. Um, So something like brothers, where Greek probably has in mind not just an address to the males present who are reading this letter or hearing this letter, a word like brethren or a footnote like brothers and sisters to clarify that this is inclusive, I actually prefer leaving the word brothers because that's the actual Greek word. And then putting in a footnote that says that this is a, in a culture that uses gender distinctions, this is an inclusive word. But, um, but I think we need to be very clear, like when God reveals himself as a he, that's intentional. Now, is God actually male? Christ was. But he made them in our image, male and female. Male and female, exactly. Okay. So, but God chooses to be called Him or Father. So that's something we need to respect. We we shouldn't we shouldn't get confused and think of God as like a male. We can think of Christ as male, and I don't even know how that works, (laughs) because they're one God and yet they're distinct in persons. But all right, any other thoughts, questions, comments on that? It's interesting to me that this is even potentially controversial that we live in an age where people would be like, it's really kind of inappropriate that the Bible has the word brothers in it. It shouldn't be controversial, right? All right. Well, I guess that was another little shtick. No, last chance. Any comments on that? I'm sure the new NIV does not say that. I think it does say brothers and sisters, which again, is an appropriate translation, it's just not my preferred translation. And actually, I'll I'll tell you this too, I tend to prefer a little bit more difficult translations, the more essentially literal translations, because they make us work a little harder to understand the text, versus like where it's all being sort of done for us. Okay. Somebody willing to read for us 6 through 13.
2: I'm willing no one else is Do it. Now these things became examples for us, so that we will not desire evil things as they did. Don't become idolaters as some of them were, as it is written that people sat down to eat and drink and got up to play. Let us not commit sexual immorality as some of them did, And in a single day, 23,000 people fell dead. Let us not test Christ as some of them did and were destroyed by snakes. Nor should we complain as some of them did and were killed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as examples and they were written as a warning to us on whom the ends of the ages have come. I'm sorry, am I going through 13? Yes. So whoever thinks he stands must be careful not to fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to humanity. God is faithful that he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but but with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape so that you are able to bear it. Thank you. Okay,
0: so we get four different examples here. Um, Rather than just sort of generally say, don't blow it like Israel did, Paul's like, let's zoom in on a couple of clear examples. And he's sort of already done that when he said the cloud by day and the fire by night and... They ate manna, but that's pretty general. We can actually look at, like, I think the passages that um, Paul has in mind here. Um, But before we do that, I want to remind you that, uh, well, not remind you, maybe just make you aware or point out that I think a lot of times Christians neglect the Old Testament in their reading of Scripture personally. I can understand that from a pastor when it comes to preaching because I can literally count up the number of hours that I have in my life to stand in front of the church and teach. And so I think it's more profitable to sort of focus on the New Testament and then where appropriate kind of point back. But probably over the course of my life, we'll spend maybe a quarter of the time in the Old Testament, like we're doing now with Genesis, and three quarters of the time in the New Testament. And I think I can justify that. But I think a lot of times Christians sort of neglect their reading the Old Testament in their scripture reading. And you'll even hear them sort of justify, well, now that we have the New Covenant, we don't need the Old Covenant. Or now that we have the New Testament, we don't need the Old Testament. But what is Paul doing here with the Old Testament? Does he sort of think, guys, now that we got Jesus, it doesn't really matter anymore. What's his approach? Showing Christ in Any the Old Testament. Showing Christ in the Old Testament? That's, that's awesome. That's so good. And he's using it as a teaching example for us. Right? This is a great way for us to learn the kinds of things that please God and the kinds of things that don't please God. So, verse 6, we already kind of looked at it, but these things took place as examples for us. How are you going to know that they're an example unless you're familiar with the story? How are you going to learn the wisdom out of it unless you kind of know the story?
2: Um, yeah, add a layer to that, though. Those folks didn't have the choice between... Reading the New Testament. New Testament true
0: it's true I mean they're reading the New Testament as they're hearing this letter you could say but they didn't have they couldn't like you know make a choice about pull up, right yeah. exactly that's a good point um and, and and don't misunderstand I think that probably the majority of our attention should go to the New Testament because that's the, the end goal is to reveal Christ and you only get you only get veiled revelations of him in the Old Testament but certainly our understanding of the New Testament can become more lucid, more clear by understanding the things in the Old Testament. Let, let's take Revelation, for example. Um, Greg Beale in his commentary on Revelation, says that literally every verse of Revelation has a reference to the Old Testament. Well, how are you really going to understand that unless you're pretty familiar with the Old Testament? Um, and, and when you have a... a a grasp of the Old Testament, and you read Revelation, you're like, oh my goodness, I see how all these things correspond. Um, we're going to even talk about that a little bit today as we talk about Babylon in the, the main service. So I think there's three ways to gain wisdom. Um, the first one is you can do something stupid and learn that it hurts, <laughs> the second one is you can watch somebody else do something stupid and learn that it hurts. But I think probably the best way is you can read the instruction book and learn that if you do something stupid, it's gonna hurt. And what I mean by that is, you know, take my stove at home, right? Uh, I could put my hand on the stove and learn that that hurts and I shouldn't do that. Or I could watch somebody else put their hand on the stove and learn that that hurts and I shouldn't do that. Or when they installed the stove, they said, here's the instruction book. I could read the instruction book that on the front page says, warning, do not touch the stove when it's hot, right? So, in many ways, Paul, I think, is sort of drawing out for us this concept from God's work. You could go do what Israel did and see that it's painful. You could see from Israel that it's painful, or you could just listen to what I'm telling you about what Israel did, and you'll know that that's foolish. Um, we already talked about how it's astounding how quickly Israel abandons God. They come out of Egypt with miracles and the gold of wealth. In their hands so so sorry we're gonna look um, now at these different examples so the first one is in Exodus 32 we don't necessarily need to turn there but if you if you're taking notes and you want to take notes um, when it says here in verse 7 do not be idolaters as some of them were as it is written the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play so that's Exodus 32 verses 1 through 6 And, I mean, this is right after Israel comes out of slavery in Egypt. They just saw the ten plagues. They saw the parting of the sea. God's been providing for them. They're now at the base of Mount Sinai. Literally, the cloud is still up there. This terrifying, lightning-filled darkness that represents the presence of God. They're at the foot of Mount Sinai. And what do they do? They take the wealth that they plundered from Egypt and they melt it down and they make an idol to worship. Because that guy Moses had been gone for like 40 days. We don't even know where he went, right? We're tired of waiting. Let's make our own God. So, and, and Paul says, this is a, a reminder, a warning to us that we too can easily forget. Um, yeah, I mean, just reflect for a moment on all the times in your life where God has been good to you and he's answered your prayers and he's provided and he's relieved your anxieties and he's soothed your fears and he's comforted you. And then think about how quickly you forget. How only a week can go by before you're again back in anxiety and back in desperation and wondering if God is even faithful, if he even hears your prayers, if he even cares, right? And Paul warns us not to be like that, not to be like Israel in that. Um, So they rose up to play, could have a sexual connotation to it, but it doesn't necessarily need to have a sexual connotation to it.
1: Yeah? My version doesn't say play, it says pagan revelry.
0: Okay. Um, So I spent some time looking at this word and it does quite literally mean laughter or revelry. And um, one of the places that I end up going with this is Genesis 26.8 where it says that um, and there's a nifty little word play here that you probably wouldn't catch without Hebrew, but what, what does the word Isaac mean? Does anybody remember? Laughter. Laughter. It's very similar to this word, actually, and in Genesis 26, 8, we find Abimelech the king looking at, it's Abimelech, right? Yeah, it's Abimelech. Abimelech the king seeing isaac laughing with his wife rebecca and that's the moment that abimelech realizes that isaac is married to rebecca okay so my guess is most people don't see a male and a female laughing together and then assume that they're married so what i'm getting at is it could imply more than just laughter it could imply some kind of sexual connotation to it and that's why Abimelech knew that Isaac and Rebekah were married it could have the concept of like fondling even so they, 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 they rose up to engage in revelry but it doesn't have to have that sexual connotation to it to be displeasing to God they're not celebrating the God of or they're not celebrating Yahweh and what he has done they're now celebrating this idol that they made that they're now bowing down to um, the point is turning away from Yahweh produces evil. That's, that's the ultimate point that Paul has in mind there. But let's acknowledge that sexual immorality and idolatry often go hand in hand. Um, I mean, how explicit should I be about this? Did we already talk about like the Asherah polls? I feel like I talked about that in adult Sunday school not too long ago. So the the pagan gods of the nations around Israel, that idolatry included in it all kinds of sexual immorality. And I'll just sort of skim over it by saying that fertility, like rain was perceived as a sort of fertility on the part of the gods. And to arouse the gods, you would then engage in sexual acts, and that would bring the reins. Does that make sense? So idolatry and sexual immorality often go hand in hand. Now, you can think about this. um, In a modern sense, idols are enslaving. They're false gods. They're demanding. They always want more and more. They're insatiable. They're hungry and greedy. And so you think about something like the addicting nature of pornography. For many men, it's become a ritual. It's a a form of almost idolatrous worship that they can't even free themselves from. It is very much like uh, idol worship and slavery and sexual immorality all wrapped up in one. Or think about... The religious devotion of the lgbtq fanaticism that's taking place right now it really is a, a religious movement um it's got its prophets and priests and if you say blasphemous things then you get targeted for either excommunication or um maybe worse than that it's so anyway the point is idolatry and sexual immorality are often closely knit together comments Questions, thoughts on that? Okay, let's go to the next one. Um, So, and and I didn't give you a reference for that one. Verse 8, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. That's Numbers 25, verses 4 through 9. Verse 9 says, we must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. So that's Numbers 21, 4 through 6. And I think it's kind of interesting here. Who does, in verse 9, Paul says that the Israelites put to the test? Christ. Christ, right? Paul has no problem seeing Jesus, the third person of the Godhead, present in the actions of Yahweh in the Old Testament. You know, there's some people that say, well, the Bible doesn't teach very clearly the Trinity. Um, clearly there must be three different gods. But Paul assumes it. He doesn't even feel he needs to make an argument for it. Right? Who was, who did they offend? Who did they test in the Old Testament? The Israelites? They tested Jesus. And that was angering to God. Uh, and of course if you're familiar with what Jesus says um, in John 3, anybody know what Jesus said about the serpent? Look to it, right? Yeah, Jesus plays off of this. In John chapter 3, he says, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness that Israel might be saved, so too must the Son of Man be lifted up, that all who look to him would be saved. Yeah? I think it's appropriate
4: to say at this point that uh, every... Christian cult immediately separates in some form the Trinity that's the first movement of any again I would say any any cult that follows you know the trick the, uh, you know I mean that's that's the always it's the first
0: deviation yeah I would say it a little bit different I wouldn't say that that's always but I would say there's two there's always one of two Either they diminish God in some way or they elevate man in some way, either they make God like man or they make man like God now no, what I'm talking about is you were talking about the Trinity, yeah okay that that specifically
4: most of them what they do is they elevate the God the Father above Christ and the, or the Holy Spirit, or they move the Holy Spirit out in
0: some way yeah so that they all mess with the Trinity yeah and I, I, all I'm saying is I think in alternate way that you could say that is diminish God by making him three, or diminish God by making a part of the Trinity only man, or diminish God by removing the spirit, those kinds of things. We're, just, we're saying the same thing just in one, one stating it positively, one stating it negatively. But you're right. That's always <laughs> pay attention to how people define and describe the Godhead. Right. Because if you want to sniff that, out the So you guys
2: are saying cultural and biblical. cults
0: are definitely (laughs) by definition (laughs) Um, okay so Jesus says the snake must be lifted up and uh, well sorry that's what happened in the Old Testament the snake was lifted up sorry the serpents came into the camp they bit the Israelites they were poisoned they were dying God says to Moses make a serpent put it on a stick raise it up anybody who looks at it the poison will kill them Jesus says I am the snake Right? I am the one who when lifted up if you look to him will be saved now does anybody have a problem with that where else do we get snake imagery the devil. right the devil in, uh, in Genesis uh, chapter 3 so this is an important point to make there is a method of interpretation called first use and first used First use hermeneutic says that whenever you find this imagery first in the Bible, that's going to dictate how you should interpret that imagery all through the Bible, okay? But obviously this instance where Jesus says, I'm like the snake, uh, totally undoes that. So be very careful how you take imagery that you find in one place and apply it to the other. What should ultimately constrain the use of the imagery. Context. Context, thank you. Context is what constrains it. Jesus is not saying, I'm like Satan. No, he's saying, I'm like that picture where the snake was the redemptive thing. I am the ultimate redemptive thing, okay? That's super important because there's even some places where it switches like that, and you have to be really careful. In one instance, Jesus says, "Uh, you can't put new wine into old wineskins. And he says when people t- taste old wine, they don't want the new wine. But you got to think through that really carefully because those seem like contradictory statements. But you can work through it and you can understand the, the metaphor is changing. Is that helpful at all? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and uh, maybe we already mentioned this too, but Jude 5 is kind of interesting because it says when Christ led a people out of Egypt... I think that that's kind of cool, because who led people out of Egypt? Yahweh. And yet, Jude says it was Christ. Okay, what do you think it means to put Christ to the test? Paul warns us against doing this in verse 9. Do you think that there is an absolute prohibition against testing God? Yes. Do you think that it's always, Paul says, don't test God, but do you think it's always wrong to test God? Well, you have people like, uh, uh, what's the name that took
2: that, the, if, if it was wet or if it was dry, you know, these Gideon, things. Look Gideon. like tests. Right, right. i sorry. If you test him in his promises, like, I believe that, but I'm testing him with my faith right now. Well, it's not realized yet, but I trust that God is faithful, and when I perish, I will not really die and I'll be with God in heaven. That's a test, so to speak. Yeah. If I wake up as an unconscious bowl of spaghetti, <laughs> then I'm not going oh, to be there. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you can't
4: test you them like well, Gideon <laughs> <tested>.
0: <laughs> Yeah, so people will often go to Gideon and they'll say, look, Gideon tested God and he's a judge of the Old Testament. I lo- and I'm, I'm pretty sure I've said this before but please hear me when I say basically everything in Judges is an example of what not to Absolutely. do <laughs> Gideon is not a hero because of what he does he's, he's a hero because of what God does through him so when people are like look we've got this example in Judges we should act like this I'm like you need to go read Judges very carefully because um, I don't think that's the point especially when you go to Deborah but anyway. Okay, but uh, I'm I'm trying to find it, and I should have written it down. But in Malachi, where God is rebuking Israel for not giving um, the proper tithes, God says, test me and see. Right? So God actually invites testing in some way, shape, or form. So what's the kind of testing that is being prohibited here? Well, I was relating it to the
2: Yeah. Seems like those are two separate things. There's four things listed that were not to do as an example. Complaining is a separate one. Not that they're kind of interlinked like where he was demonstrating with idolatry and immorality. But so, I mean, the example he gives: let's not test Christ, and they were destroyed by snakes. So, what did they do when they were destroyed by snakes? So we can we can kind of see the context Paul has in mind, right? That's how they tested Christ. Numbers 21:6
0: yeah they they continued to complain against him uh, they, i i think what it really comes down to is lack of belief how is this thing over here going to solve my problem right and i think that's the kind of testing god i know what your word says but i just don't believe it so ver- versus god i know what your word says and therefore i'm going to act on it right how, how do you test a bridge Test a chair you go across it, right? How do you test a chair? Right? You sit in it. Now you test a bridge by going across it, but you don't test a bridge by building a skyscraper on it, right? You 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 use it for its intended purpose, not in its unintended purpose. yeah, didn't No,
3: Sarah, right? They tested
0: Well, I think they did actually believe God. But yeah, I mean, they were they were wrestling with unbelief f- right. for sure. Um, Who's this? Abraham and Sarah. Yeah,
3: because she gave the other lady to have a baby with him, yeah. and that's all. Like, right. That
0: man, and that caused so many problems. Yeah. But before that, in chapter twelve, which is what we're going to look at today in the sermon, they they did believe God um, because they went like God commanded. So. You know, they're kind of a mixed bag there. Like most of us are. They're kind of a mixed bag, I think. I what think, were you gonna say? I think that uh, Daniel's friends and the
4: furnace were the best New Testament test. They basically said, first of all, I haven't got any choice. <laughs> right. Secondly, secondly, if it works out, more the better for you. But if it doesn't work out, we're good. Yeah. yeah. So that that's
0: the ultimate test yeah. is that, my faith is so strong, I don't yeah. care. Yeah. That's good. And I'll I'll say it again the way that I said it is, I I think that we shouldn't test God by saying, I don't believe that what you've said will come to pass. But rather, because I believe that what you've said will come to pass, I'm going to go forward with this against all the evidence. Does that kind of make sense? Okay. Yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, maybe a good example of this would be something like, your company is requiring you to do something that's unethical and i'm not trying to relate this to like vaccines or anything so don't don't take it too far your company says you must do something that is unethical and you think my god has told me i must not do that but if i resist i will lose my job and i will not be able to provide for my family therefore i'm going to do the unethical thing and trust that god will you know work out the unethical thing that it would be testing god Versus saying, I will not do the unethical thing. I will hold the boundary. And if I get fired, I will believe that God will find another way to provide for me. It will be okay. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Walk by faith, not by sight. Yes. That's good. Um, All right, let's touch on. We're not going to get through all this this week. I'm sorry. Grumbling in the Destroyer. This is the next um, example here. And this is the kind of the last example that Paul gives it. This is from Numbers 16, verses 41 to 49. And again, Israel is super slow to learn. Now, if you go back to that passage, Numbers 16, 41 to 49, look for the word destroyer, it's not there. Where does Paul get this word from? Genesis,
2: Passover.
0: Yeah. So does it bother you that God takes the title, destroyer? You're the one who can destroy both body and soul. Yeah. Yeah. I I found that uh, sometimes (coughs) people who call themselves Christians because their theological understanding of God is, is really small he's kind of like Santa Claus that when you bring in words like destroyer or sovereign or master that the thing explodes. Mm -hmm. Those are difficult concepts and we need to wrestle through them, but that's how scripture reveals God. Um, And he is very displeased with things that insult his name and his character that diminish who he is, his glory grumbling, complaining, speaking against the goodness of God um, these are things that that displease God greatly now, there's an endless amount of forgiveness if we go to God and we ask for his forgiveness um, but we should be careful how we think about God and his sovereign holiness He's not like us. And just think, I mean, how often are you guilty of complaining? Now you may say, I'm just complaining against life. The traffic is bad, right? I'm tired of the heat. It's summer in Arizona. Um, The political situation is so angering right now. Inflation, the gas price at the pump, right? All the kinds of things, like how many times in a day do we at least mentally complain? Let me just point out that ultimately, that is a reflection of your view of god because he's sovereignly in control of all of that
3: mm-hmm.
0: so yes be and and the right thing to do then is to be pierced and then the next time that you're going to go complain be like no god's so good to me mm-hmm. and he's in control and like the gas prices might be high but that's really in the scheme of eternity insignificant right and yeah it's summer and it's hot and i'm tired but what do i have to complain about you know i mean if i actually factored in the ice that comes from my refrigerator and the ac that's blowing in my face and the fact that i can live in a house with shade like but those things don't even matter right (laughs) you live under the hand of a god who loves you desperately who gave his son for you Even if you didn't have all of the trappings, you would still have everything. So what do you have to complain about? I think we should um, stop there. And I mean, I guess I can come back next week if that's what you guys would prefer. Or we can um, just move on. I should come back? Okay. Well, I've got the notes prepared, so I might as well. Let's do it. How about I pray for us? God, I pray that you would give us hearts that are full of rejoicing and worship and joy and praise and thanksgiving that we wouldn't be guilty of the same sins that Israel was guilty of unbelief and complaining and unrighteous testing and doubt and we thank you that you have given us the ultimate proof that you will make every provision for us because you've already given us your son what more could you give and I pray that we would think on these things and that as a result our desire would be to honor you, to forsake idolatry and sin, and to finish this race to earn the, the prize, the reward. In Christ's name, amen. Mm-hmm.